Thanks for listening to this week's sermon from Epicos Church in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. For more information about Epicos, please visit epicos.org. My name's Adam. I serve as the small groups pastor here at Epicos. And my wife has been at Epicos for about six years now. And uh, about as, as of yesterday, eight weeks, ago, eight weeks ago, we added one uh, member to the family of Epicos with our little daughter, Cora. Uh, it's been a blast to enter into fatherhood. And then we have a Vishla, which is a type of dog, but that's, that's a story for another time. Would you do me a favor? Would you pick up the Bible in front of you or the one in your seat back pocket? I'm going to challenge you not to use your smartphone, but actually use a physical Bible this morning. So either the one that you brought with you or the one in the seat back pocket. Go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 12. We're going to be in verses 1 and 2 this morning. Last week, Pastor Frank walked us through what is known as the Romans Road. It's a tool that we can use to share the gospel, but also to remind ourselves of the, of the gospel. It's the story of Jesus, and it's a story that we can all be wrapped up in when we put our faith in him. And so if the story of Jesus is our story, if it's what's most true about us, then how should we live in response? The Apostle Paul is going to show us what that looks like today. Now, if you don't mind, I'm going to push us a step farther and try something we might not be used to here at Epicos, but uh, if you're comfortable and able, I would ask you to stand as we read scripture today. And there's a reason for this, I will share later. If you're at one of the other campuses, please stand. If you're at home, I know it might be weird, stand for us today as we stand before God's word. If you're in your car listening to this, obviously, you know what to do. Don't stand. All right, are we ready? I didn't hear any yeses, but I'll go for it. Romans 12, 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You can go ahead and take a seat. Thank you for obliging me on that. In his book, Three Pieces of Glass, Eric Jacobson makes the claim that there are three pieces of glass that have drastically change your life. You can probably guess what they are. They're a little bit more uh, new over the course of human history. They're our smartphone, our TV, and the windshield on our car. Americans spend about five and a half hours on their smartphone each day, and this isn't just a younger generation thing. Sorry, Gen Xers, you spend about two and a half hours of, of your day on your phone. I just got my notification this morning. I was at, I think, four hours on my phone this week, or four hours per day this week. On average, we spend about uh, three hours a day watching TV, and I love a good Netflix binge as much as the next guy, but I never walk away feeling good. And then we spend about 52 minutes behind the windshield of our cars to get to and from work. That's almost an hour out of each day taken away from time with ones that we love. And so through the distraction of our smartphones, the escapism of a TV show, and the commuting time behind a windshield, we, we, trade, those th- we trade the life of connection and love we desire for those things. So why do we allow these three pieces of glass to take such a precious thing away from us? I think it's because we tend to believe the lie that they're going to provide us with the ultimate satisfaction and happiness. We're looking for satisfaction, but most often these screens just leave us with a feeling of disappointment and discontentment. But we tend to believe the story that they offer us something they never can. And so I don't know how you came in here this morning. I don't know what story you believe about yourself, but I want you to ask yourself that. What, it, what story do you believe about yourself? Is it the story we heard last week from Pastor Frank, Romans 1 through 11, about the fact that we've been reconciled to God? Or is it something else that serves as the foundation of your life? 
Now, I'm not saying you need to go back to a flip phone. You might for some of you. I did in 2019 for three months, and it was incredible. Nobody could get a hold of me. I couldn't even text, because if you remember what T9 was, where you had to press the number two three times to get the letter C, it was Nobody could get a hold of me. I charged my phone once every week. It was, it was awesome. So I'm not saying that you need to do that, but I am saying that there are false stories all around us that are vying for our attention and trying to get us to live according to the ways of the world. But because of what Jesus has done for us, because of the gospel, we no longer have to believe in those false stories. Instead, we work with the Holy Spirit's movement in our life by, as in our passage today, presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice. In order to understand what Paul's saying here, we have to know what he means by the word body. He's talking about our literal, physical bodies, what you see in front of you when you look at your hands. And Paul knew his audience well because one of the false stories that the Romans, even the Romans Christians, were led to believe was this idea of Gnosticism. And one of the main points of Gnosticism was that everything in creation or, or creation itself materially was not good. Or maybe it was even an, uh, uh, an evil part of creation. It certainly wasn't a good part of God's creation and that included our physical bodies. And so just as in Paul's day, we need to today recapture a healthy God-centered view of our bodies. And once we do that, we can understand what it means when Paul says to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. So, quick theology on the body. We don't have a body. We are a body, and we are a soul. We are, the term that theologians like to use is embodied souls. We are psychosomatic beings, and habits of our mind affect our bodies, and habits of our bodies affect our minds, and that can eventually take root and form our souls. And without going into too much scientific detail, just know that that can literally get passed into our DNA and passed on to our children, either for good or for evil. So when Paul says to present our bodies, he's asking that we take a look at our habits of mind and habits of body. And this shows up in how we spend our time, because time is synonymous or, is dictate, or dictates what we do with our bodies. Paul is saying we need to make decisions on how we spend our time, where and doing what we place our individual bodies. Because how you spend your time and what you do with your body tells you what you love most and what you orient your life toward. But what does Paul mean by spiritual worship? Another way to think of this is reasonable worship. What he's saying is that in light of what Jesus has done of us, as we learned about in Romans 1 through 11, is that it only makes sense to live lives of sacrifice to Jesus and to live any other way wouldn't make logical sense. Another thing to keep in mind here is the connection Paul is making between worship and sacrifice. When we hear the word worship, we think about what we just did, just singing songs, but for the Roman people, worship and sacrifice were interchangeable parts to a whole. They would have, through Paul's words, their minds would have been drawn to this idea of physical sacrifices on the, on the altar, and they would have seen Paul's words as a call to lay down their life and give of all they have to God. So why don't we? Why is it that you and I so often don't live in a way that reflects the incredible nature of the gospel? Could it be that we have a tendency to believe false stories that are contrary to the gospel? I think it is. We believe false stories because by default, as we see in verse 2 of our text, we have been, as Paul says, conformed to this world. And the word for conformed here is this idea of forming or fashioning oneself after something. And in this case, Paul is talking about our character or who we are in our inmost being and allowing it to be formed according to the ways of the world. So what does this conformity look like? For the Roman Christians, it looked like offering sacrifices to the innumerable pagan gods and viewing people in lower classes and women as inferior. And the temptation to believe false stories 
is still in existence today. We face them still today. One of the false stories that our, our culture tries to throw, that, throw at us is that of pragmatism. Pragmatism is this idea that whatever works must be true. It's kind of where we get our moral relativism of our day. What you do you, or what's true for you is true for you, and what's true for me is true for me, which, let's think about it, that doesn't even make logical sense, right? There are many other false stories the world tries to throw at us, such as consumerism, postmodernism. Don't have time to get into them today, but if you want a further resource on that, you can go to the hub, and there's a link to a video there. So those are some pretty broad categories, and I want to make it a little bit more tangible for us. So what are the false stories that we tend to believe here in Milwaukee? And what are the false stories that we even tend to believe in the church sometimes? I've lived in Milwaukee for six years now, and I hope I have a pretty good grasp on the idols of our city. One of them is upward mobility, or the idea that if we could just get into that perfect mid-century modern home in Tosa, right? Or that new up-and-coming apartment building down the block that then we'd be happy. Or careerism, which is tied to upward mobility, this idea that our worth and our validity is proven by how far up in a company we move. Then there's hedonism or pleasure-seeking, which ultimately leads to addiction. Milwaukee County reported 643 drug overdoses in 2021, which was up from 546 deaths in 2020. And I've been a follower of Jesus since 2010 and in the church that entire time, and I've found that there's some false stories that we tend to believe in the church. I'll just point to one. That one is that thinking that brokenness is the highest rung of the spiritual ladder. Maybe you've seen the bumper sticker, Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. And while it's true that we aren't perfect and that we are forgiven, we are certainly not just or only forgiven. There's so much more that God wants to do in our lives. The thing is, these false stories are as old as time and they've been constantly disproven as a way to live. But I promise you, if they were a better way to live than following after Jesus, Jesus would be the first person to tell you to pursue them. But he doesn't do that. For the Roman church, one of the false stories that they were tempted to believe was that salvation was just for the Jewish people not anybody else. And this caused tension in the church. As I said earlier, they were also tempted to continue worshiping the innumerable pagan gods of Rome. And so what false stories do you believe this morning? Do you feel stuck believing and living in them as if they were true? If so, Paul has a remedy for us. And my hope isn't for us to feel helpless amid all these false stories that vie for our attention, but give us some tangible handholds that we can walk out of here this morning with. It's only when we face the danger head-on that we can begin to fight it. And before we get there, we have, to, we have to understand why we have this tendency to believe in false stories. It goes all the way back to the Roman time and all the way back to Genesis 3. In Rome, there existed a, a building called the Pantheon, and it was literally a building that was designed so that people could offer worship through sacrifice to any and every god that they could think of that might exist in order that they might appease them. And then going further back to Genesis 3, we read about how Satan came to Eve to tempt her away from God in the garden. And there's something really important that I need us to realize about how he did that. My favorite Christian philosopher, Dallas Willard, writes, When Satan undertook to draw Eve away from God, he did not hit her with a stick, but with an idea. It was with an idea that God could not be trusted and that she must act on her own to secure her own well-being. As we first turned away from God in our thoughts, so it is in our thoughts that the first movements toward the renovation of the heart occur. Thoughts are the place where we can and must begin to change. We are to abhor evil and cleave to that which is good, and the foundation for doing that lies in where we place our minds. 
Dallas Willard's words offer us hope that are directly in line with the Apostle Paul's train of thought in Romans. In Romans 1, he talks about how humans have exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and as a result, God has given us over to a debased mind. And so how do we avoid having this debased mind and instead gain the mind of Christ? It's through, as Paul says in our passage, to be transformed by the renewal of our minds. But first, again, we have to understand something else. It's important that we all understand that we receive, we all receive a spiritual formation or a way in which our character is shaped, whether we're aware of it or not. And then the second thing we have to understand about that spiritual formation is that there are only two options available to us. So let's define spiritual formation. Well-known pastor John Mark Comer defines spiritual formation as the process by which we are formed in our spirits or inner persons into the image of Jesus, or conversely, deformed into the image of the devil. Spiritual formation isn't just a follower of Jesus thing, it's a human thing. We're all being formed every minute of every day. We're all becoming someone, intentional or unintentional, conscious or subconscious, deliberate or haphazard. We're all in the process of becoming a person. The question isn't, are you becoming somebody, but who are you becoming? And so we have two options. Option one is to continue living how we've been, somewhat oblivious to the fact that the ways of the world can shape us, and it often succeeds at doing so. And this is honestly the easier option, because we just get to keep living life how we've been living, with not a care in the world for how it's going to affect us, our kids, our community, and our friendships. But I promise that it will wreak havoc on your soul and in your relationships. Option two is to live fully aware of the fact that we are formed one way or another and we have the choice to model our life after the one who laid down his life for us that we might know God. The true and better story is that we have been saved by Jesus and the aim of our lives is to be transformed into the image of Jesus. And I can attest from personal experience that this is the harder, for sure, but better option. If I'm honest, sometimes I feel helpless to try and combat the stories of the world that try to vie for my attention and think it might just be easier to try and carve out a little chunk of happiness for myself and my family. But the Apostle Paul doesn't leave me or us hanging to try to figure out how we should live on our own. We fight back against believing in these false stories and truly live according to the way of Jesus, which is the abundant life through following something ancient that followers of Jesus over the last 2,000 years have put into practice and that Jesus himself utilized when he was tempted by Satan in the desert. The Apostle Paul says we do this by allowing ourselves to be transformed by the renewal of your mind. The word transformed here conveys the idea of when a caterpillar turns into a butterfly. It literally means to change into another form. Scripture talks about us being new creations. What Paul is trying to communicate here, as he does in his other letters, is that the goal of the Christian life that we are transformed into the image of Jesus over the course of our lives. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. What we behold, what we focus on, what we dwell upon, shapes us. And the first freedom that God has given us is what we allow our mind to dwell upon. When we behold the glory of the Lord, we are transformed into the image of Jesus from one degree of glory to another and another. Paul is saying that our character begins to take on the shape of the character of Jesus progressively over time as we focus our attention and make following him the pursuit of our lives. But the opposite is also true. When we behold the glory of the world and human achievement, we are 
we are transformed into the image of the world from one degree of brokenness to, the, to another. And our character will begin to take on the attributes of the world. And as odd and as self-helpy as that might sound, or as this might sound, we become what we give our mind to. Because we've all, been, we've all given our minds to false stories to some extent, there's an unlearning process that we need to go through. We need to unline, unlearn the lies of the world and the enemy that we are what we have, that we are what we achieve, that we are our job or anything like that. And for those of us saved by the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, we need to unlearn anything that tries to tell us that we are anything less than a forgiven and loved child of God. Christian spiritual formation is the process of someone taking on the character and mind of Jesus. And notice the, the wording that Paul uses in speaking about trans, transformation. He doesn't say transform yourselves. He says be transformed. He's using what's called the passive imperative tense here. And how we should live is imperative because in light of being reconciled to God, there's a way that we should live as a result. And because it's also passive, it's the, the Holy Spirit that God is using to work on our souls to shape us into his, into his image. But because it's imperative or essential, there's, there's something that we have to do. There's something that we bring to the table in our transformation. Just like in order for a caterpillar to turn into a butterfly, we have to place ourselves in a particular set of circumstances and adopt a certain way of life in order to enter into the transformation that Jesus has for us. Now, I need you to hear me very clearly. I'm not saying in any way that we earn our salvation. Paul makes it very clear in the book of Ephesians that us being brought from death to life is a gift from God. Ephesians 2, 8-9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. We've all probably heard that before. But often we stop there and we cut Paul's train of thought short. He goes on in verse 10 of Ephesians 2 to say, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them created in Christ Jesus for good works, that we should walk in them. Clearly, there's a role that we play. If you're struggling with this idea, uh, I love what Dallas Willard says. He says, grace is not opposed to effort. It is opposed to earning. Earning is an attitude. Effort is an action. Grace, you know, does not just have to do with forgiveness of sins alone. If you'll pick up your Bibles again, the one that's in front of you, let's uh, go to the left a few pages in our Bible to Romans 6, verses 12 to 13. It says, Paul writes, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. According to Paul, we have a choice. We have a choice to present our parts of our body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness or to God as instruments of righteousness. And we have to take honest stock of our lives and ask us how we spend our time and where in doing what we place our individual bodies. Is it towards righteousness or unrighteousness, toward goodness or towards evil? So how much sleep do you get? How's your exercise and nutrition? What's the state of your mental health? These are all indicators of living toward good or toward evil. How much time do you spend on your smartphone just scrolling the news or Twitter? What we allow into our brains through our eyes, both of which are parts of our body, have a direct impact on our soul. 
And what we allow in can be habituated in our body and begin to take on a life of its own, forming habits either toward good or toward evil. Scientific discovery has backed up what Paul and other biblical authors have long known, that our brains are plastic or moldable. And the idea, the phrase that neurons that fire together wire together rings true. We can literally rewire our brains in a positive or negative direction, away from or towards God. As a result, not all sins are conscious choices, but rather once a choice, the sin has been made over and over and over again. It becomes a habit that is formed in our body. But the good news is God's the one who created this neuroplasticity mechanism to use it for our advantage so that we might make living like Jesus a habit of our body. And once we're aware of this mechanism, we can begin to fight against sin and rehabituate our bodies. In Ephesians, Paul talks about the need for us to put off the old self and put on the new. Do you remember earlier when I said that we don't get a choice over whether or not we're formed, just what we're formed into? Well, we choose to be formed into the image of Jesus by presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice. And we present our bodies by adopting the practices of Jesus and followers of Jesus over the last 2,000 years. These are practices or examples of how we present our bodies as a living sacrifice that are known as spiritual disciplines or spiritual practices. So definition. Spiritual practices are an activity in your power that enables you to do what you can't do by direct effort. Say it one more time. A spiritual practice is an activity in your power that enables you to do what you can't do by direct effort. Meaning, you intentionally choose to place yourself in a set of circumstances and adopt a certain way of life in order that you might be transformed. Not by your own effort, but by the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. It's how we practically put off the old self and put on the new. Remember when I had to stand for the reading of scripture? I think you probably remember that. That was a spiritual practice, whether you knew it or not. Because we are embodied souls and habits of our body affect our mind and vice versa, we can take advantage of certain activities to embed the way of the kingdom of God into our souls. In a world that wants to minimize the place of God's word in our life, we stood to show our reverence and honor to God's word. And standing before God's written word, we quite literally presented our bodies as a sacrifice to him. And whether you felt it in that moment or not, it had a non-conforming to the world and transforming effect on your soul. And so it's through spiritual practices that we lead with our bodies to posture or ready our hearts for the work of God in our life. If you've been around Epicos for some time now, you've probably noticed in the study guides the spiritual practices index or the formation and application questions. In the spiritual practices index, you'll notice there are two types of practices. Practices of engagement and practices of abstinence. Now, when I say abstinence, I'm not talking about sex, but rather just this idea of refraining or restraining from something. Spiritual practices of engagement are those that we engage in or participate in something, like reading your Bible, serving, prayer. While spiritual practices of abstinence are those by which we forego something. Simplicity, sacrifice, Sabbath, silence and solitude. Earlier, we talked about the fact that we have to unlearn stories and learn the true story of God, and spiritual practices help us do just that. Practices of engagement put our mind's focus on the story of God and let it take root deep in our soul. And we live in a very noisy world, and so practices of abstinence allow us to put ourselves in a place to hear from God, to hear from ourselves, and forego certain things in order to strip away false stories and false ideas of contentment. In other words, practices of engagement fill us up, while practices of abstinence prune at us to make us look more like Christ. 
Jan Johnson in her book, Abundant Simplicity, says, when people emphasize engagement disciplines to the neglect of abstinence practices, they may feel filled up. But in reality, they are likely to become agitated when things don't go their way or when others don't do what they want. They may know, practice, and teach spiritual disciplines, but they still find themselves being impatient, egotistical, or pushy. If we don't practice abstinence disciplines regularly, we find ourselves stuck. We become reliant on our own devices, such as yelling and manipulation, to get people to do things, or we turn to inappropriate sources of satisfaction, such as our job or internet porn. We're unable to experience transformation no matter how much we pray or meditate because there's all this stuff in us that needs undoing. We need both. And I can tell you from personal experience that spiritual practices have deeply impacted my life and my relationship with Jesus. I find that I'm more content in my life, at ease in my own body, and more easily at peace with God and others. My simple goal in life is to become like Jesus and to become a non-anxious presence in a world that is very anxious. So what practical step can you take today to present your body as a living sacrifice? You can begin to implement some of the tried and true practices throughout Christian history. To practice silence and solitude, maybe give yourself an extra 15 minutes in your car so when you get to the office, you can just turn the car off. Before you walk into the office, just be in silence before God for 15 minutes. Or if that's too much, just turn the radio off in your car in your commute. Deal with that silence for a little bit. My wife and I are not perfect at Sabbath, and the goal is not perfection. That would be legalism. But when we started practicing Sabbath, we noticed a huge shift in our pace of life and our outlook throughout the course of the week. I actually got bored a few times. When's the last time you guys have been bored? That hasn't happened since 2007 when the iPhone came out, right? And boredom, we know, is where creativity begins. Practicing simplicity in my clothing has drastically improved my life. What you see right now, ask anybody, this is what you get. I've got eight of the same shirts in different colors. This is my one pair of black jeans and I have one pair of black shorts. I'll wear these shoes for like two years now. When I I was growing up, uh, I had to switch houses every single Friday. And so that meant packing every single Friday for each house. And to this day, ask my wife, I hate packing And I love her because half the time I walk in the bedroom and when we're going somewhere, she's already packed my clothes because she knows the, the turmoil that it causes in my soul. But God has used the practice of simplicity to keep my heart and mind focused on him and not to mention the, the money that I save on not buying a copious amount of clothes. If you've been in a small group, you've already gotten started with a spiritual practice through community. There are numerous ways to start engaging with spiritual practices. I just encourage you to pick one. Anything that fosters your life with God is a spiritual practice. I asked earlier how much sleep you get and how your nutrition and exercise are. For some of you, that's your starting point. I give you full permission to say the spiritual practice I'm engaging in this week is to prioritize getting eight hours of sleep. That's a spiritual discipline. God gave us these bodies to care for. If spiritual practices are new to you, start there or just start with reading scripture or maybe don't take your phone and headphones with you on a walk. Just walk around your neighborhood in silence. But if you're ready for more, there's a great activity that I have on the hub called a a time or a habit audit, audit in which you can look over the course of a week and see how much time you spend on different activities and how they affect your life. If you want more details, just go to thehub.epicos.org. So to finish up, it's important to know why we do any of this. Again, we don't do it to earn God's favor but to develop the mind of Christ within us. As a result, we'll be able to, as Paul concludes in our passage for today, uh, discern what is the will of God, what is good 
and acceptable and perfect. With our minds in a continual process of renewal by the Holy Spirit and our effort in engaging with various spiritual practice, we'll be more oriented toward God and his kingdom. We're in a continual process of trying to learn from Jesus how to live our lives. But what is Paul talking about when he mentions that the will of God is perfect, acceptable, and good? He offers an example of what a person who is focused on the will of God might look like. And I encourage you to read Romans 12, 3 to 21 on your own, but Paul shares a few things of what that life might look like. He says, not to think of yourself more highly than you should. Let your love be genuine or unselfish. Be constant in prayer. Outdo others in honoring them. Bless those who persecute you, so on and so forth. I don't know about you, but I want those things to mark my life. Now, it's important when I read those things that Paul isn't giving us a a law to obey, but instead describing the type of life that we can have when we present our bodies as a living sacrifice. Remember the definition of a spiritual practice? An activity in your power that enables you to do what you can't do by direct effort. Being constant in prayer is very difficult when we start, but when we practice it over and over and over again, it becomes a natural part of who we are. Letting our love be genuine or or not having a care in the world about what we might get out of a certain situation is incredibly hard and we should not beat ourselves up about it. But through practices like simplicity, sacrifice, and serving, we can begin to habituate this idea of love being genuine into our very lives, into our bodies. We effectively, over time, take on the mind of Christ. It's easy to get hung up on the will of God and if you've ever been to a conference where there's a seminar taught on the will of God, I guarantee you that room is going to be filled to the brim while the other rooms at that same time are going to be pretty much empty. But the truth is the will of God is really simple to know. In 1 Thessalonians 4.3, Paul says, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. He then goes on to talk about what that looks like, but we need to know that God's primary concern in our life is the person we're becoming. I'll say that one more time. God's primary concern in our life is the person that we are becoming. The Apostle Paul wanted the Roman church to respond by assessing how they lived their lives, what they gave their thoughts to, what they gave their bodies to, and take intentional steps toward allowing the Holy Spirit to transform transform them, and he wants the same for us today. May we become so enamored and captivated by life in the kingdom of God and our minds so transformed to such a degree that the way of Christ is habituated in our bodies that not through gritted teeth, but because of who we are, we love others in the world around us. May it be said of us that the more difficult thing to do would be to have contempt for God and contempt for others because it would be so against our character. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the ways in which you have worked in our lives and the fact that you have reconciled us to yourself, that we might have new life in you, that you have brought us from death to life. But I pray that we wouldn't stop there, but we would fully embrace the ways in which you want to transform our hearts and orient our lives towards your kingdom. May we become people of love through the work of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.